What's the most important question in life? What determines the importance of a question is the breadth of impact the answer to that question has on our life. In one of the stories that we'll be looking at today, Jesus will ask his disciples the most important question anyone has ever asked in this life. It's not a complicated question. It's not a question that requires an advanced degree from college to answer. It's a question that a small child can answer. But it's also a question that some of the most brilliant minds in the world have pondered for centuries. The question is this, who is Jesus Christ? Why is this the most important question in life? Because our answer to that question has the largest potential impact upon our life, both in the now and in the future. It affects how we see and interpret all of reality. It affects our purpose and motivation for life. It affects the moral standards that we choose to live our life by. It affects how we respond to suffering and pain in our life. It affects our outlook on death and dying. It affects our future beyond this life. We'll flip over to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to pick up today in verse 1, which is where we left off last time. We ended our study last time through the Gospel of Matthew at the end of Matthew chapter 15. We're picking up today at the beginning of chapter 16. Immediately following the astonishing miracle by Jesus of feeding the huge crowd of some 4,000 men, along with women and children, with just a few small fish and loaves of bread, we have this story beginning in verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested Him by asking Him to show them a sign from heaven. We might think, well, how much bigger of a sign do you need than to feed 4,000 men plus women and children with a few small fish and loaves of bread? We'll talk about that. So we have these troublemakers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at it again. They are asking Jesus to give them a sign from heaven to prove that he is the Messiah of God. You might remember that they asked for a sign before in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 38. Note that it says here, they came to Jesus and tested him by asking for a sign. This is not a sincere inquiry they're making. They're not really wanting to know if Jesus is, the, is from God or not. They have already made up their mind about Him. They have already been claiming that Jesus is using the power of the Prince of Demons to do His miracles. They have already been plotting on how they can get Jesus killed. This is all part of their cat and mouse game that they are playing with Jesus. They are hoping to trap Jesus, trick him into saying or doing something that they can then use against him to have him arrested and ultimately executed. Jesus has provided more than sufficient evidence for them to believe, but they refuse to believe in spite of the evidence. By asking Jesus to give them a sign, they are, in effect, rejecting all of the signs that He has already given them. Nothing He's done up to this point is legitimate or sufficient, according to them. All of the amazing miracles of healing and exorcism and other astonishing acts are all inadequate and invalid. The Pharisees and scribes of all people at that time should have been some of the 
first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They've supposedly devoted their whole life to the study of the scriptures and the interpretation of the signs of the times. But when the Messiah actually comes, they refuse to believe because he threatens everything that they have built for themselves. Verse 2, Jesus responds to them. He says, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus challenges their asking him for a sign by pointing out that they have no trouble recognizing what the weather is likely to be based on the signs in the sky. But now they have obvious and numerous signs pointing to who Jesus is, but they refuse to acknowledge what these signs mean. Verse 4, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Jesus will not be bullied by these guys. He refuses to perform for them like he's some kind of circus animal doing tricks for their entertainment. The same indictment that he made against them in Matthew 12, 38, the last time they were asking for a sign, he again says to them here, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. Now he's not saying that looking for signs is always wrong, but the refusal to acknowledge the signs that God is clearly giving reveals their wickedness and stubborn unbelief. Jesus tells them that no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. Well, what is this sign of Jonah? Jesus explained what that was back in Matthew 12, 40, when he said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, the sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That will be the sign which would authenticate his claims and identify him as a Messiah. And that's no small sign, is it? I mean, no one else has ever come back from the dead outside of the special effects department in Hollywood. But as Jesus also pointed out in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, that if a person refuses to listen to the scriptures then even someone rising from the dead will not convince them. People in our own day say, if God would just give me a sign, then I would believe. And we have talked about this before, but it bears repeating. That they're claiming that there is insufficient evidence for them to believe that they need something more than what has already been given. But here's the deal. There is is sufficient evidence for you to believe in the existence of God and Jesus as Messiah if you are open to it. But if you're close to the very idea, then no amount of evidence, no number of signs will be enough to convince you. Excuse me. Most of the so-called, excuse me, most of the so-called intellectual problems and needs for signs are smoke screens covering over other issues. The sticking point for most people is often an 
unwillingness, an unwillingness to submit their life to God's authority and to repent of their sins. It's a moral issue, not an intellectual issue. I know that was true for me. I claim to have all kinds of intellectual problems with the existence of God and the Bible and so forth. But when I was really honest with myself, my biggest issue came down to me not liking the idea of God telling me what to do and how to live my life. I didn't want to submit myself to Him. It says at the end of verse 4, Jesus then left them and went away. He ends this interaction with these men by moving on recognizing their true intentions. He's not going to allow himself to be drawn into this long, pointless argument with them. And I think we could learn something from Jesus' example with that. We tend to want to fight and keep pushing our point of view, thinking we're going to finally win. But that's not how Jesus behaved. He patiently speaks with people, helping them to understand, but he doesn't fight He doesn't argue. He doesn't get sucked into a battle of the wills with those who oppose him. Verse 5, it says, When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread with them for this boat trip that they take across the lake. Now, why does Matthew mention this? To set up the disciples' reaction to what Jesus says in the next verse. Jesus says here, Be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It's because we didn't bring any bread. Jesus tells them, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples, they think yeast is a code word for bread, And that Jesus is upset with them because they forgot to bring enough bread for the trip. I can even imagine that they're probably beginning to discuss among themselves who is at fault. I thought you were bringing the bread. Well, I thought you were bringing the bread. Well, I told James to buy bread at the market. John told me that Peter was taking care of it. And see, and on and on they go. Because that's how... We are too, aren't we? Well, it's not my fault. I thought I told you to, but I told. Well, now he's mad at all of us. We forgot to bring bread. Nice. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus, he reminds the disciples of how God abundantly provided more bread for them than they knew what to do with. Not on one occasion, but twice. They actually had more bread after they fed the huge crowds of people than they had when they started. 
They obviously didn't need to worry about bread. They have Jesus with them, the bread of life. What else do they really need? Almost pleading with the disciples, Jesus asked them, how is it you don't understand that I was not talking about bread, you guys? And then he repeats his warning. But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the light finally turns on for them. They realize Jesus is not talking about literal bread and yeast, but about the teachings, the mindsets, the attitudes, the behaviors, the examples of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus warns his disciples and us to not follow the teachings and the examples of the hypocrisy and the legalism and the worldliness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like yeast in dough, a very small amount of these, hypocrisy, legalism, worldliness, can multiply rapidly and spread unseen. And before we know it, we can change from this beautiful, pure, simple ball of dough into a big, puffy, hypocritical loaf filled with a lot of religious gas. Verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? So Jesus travels north with his disciples to the region of the Gentile city of Caesarea Philippi, which is located about 25 miles north of Capernaum on the southern slope of Mount Hermon near one of the main springs that formed the headwaters for the Jordan River. The place was famous for the sanctuary of Pan that was there, a temple complex dedicated to Pan, a Greek god of nature. Pan is usually depicted as a half-man, half-goat-looking creature. You may have seen images of Pan before. He's also... Uh, portrayed as, you know, the one that plays the flute. <clears throat> Here are some photos of the area as it looks today. Go ahead. Where they are, there is still remains of this temple complex and its sacred pools that are there. These photos were actually taken on our trip to Israel a few years ago. And I want you to notice that large cave in the side of the mountain. It was this deep chasm that reached down to the groundwater below, and this giant cavernous maw was believed to be a gateway to and from the underworld. Go ahead and rotate those through, Doug, so they can kind of see that. It's this, and then there's remains of that temple that are still there uh, from back in many years ago. This area was beyond the northern boundary of Israel, inside the pagan territory of the Gentiles. It was a popular destination for 
pagan worshipers of the god Pan. It is at this intersection of worldviews and beliefs and spiritual ideas that Jesus takes his disciples and he asks them this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So people, they, they know Jesus is someone special and significant, but they have very different ideas about exactly who he is. They, they don't quite have him pinned down. And it's the same even in our own day, isn't it? Everyone, in large part, recognizes that Jesus is someone special and significant. But they have very different ideas about exactly who Jesus is and what that means. 15, but what about you, Jesus asks. Who do you say I am? So Jesus asks his disciples this all-important question. What about you? Who do you say I am? This is the most important question a person is asked in this life. This is the question that moves our theology from an informal little chat to a very personal and challenging dialogue between God and us. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a guy uh, once many years ago about Jesus. And I remember him going on and on telling me about his grandmother and his mother and how both of them were such devout Christians and they went to church every Sunday and they did all kinds of charity work and so on. But the question that he kept avoiding was, who do you say Jesus is? Will you follow him? How your grandmother answers these questions for herself is not going to do you any good at all. We each need to answer this question for ourselves, And how we answer that question affects our whole life. It affects how we see and interpret all of reality. It affects our purpose and motivation for life. It affects the moral standards that we choose to live by. It affects how we respond to suffering and pain. It affects our outlook on death and dying. It affects our future beyond this life. Well, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Peter, true to form, has a ready answer and steps up in front of everybody else and he boldly says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Others may be confused about who you are, Jesus, but not me. I know who you are, and I'm not afraid to say it. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, Peter's understanding of Jesus is certainly better than most people at that time. He recognizes that Jesus is indeed Messiah. But we're going to see in the next passage that his concept of Jesus as the Christ is far from perfect. Jesus and the other disciples, they still have a whole lot to learn about the real mission of the Messiah. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus, he affirms Peter's declaration that he is the Messiah, the Christ of the living God. But Jesus also tempers it by saying that this is not an insight that Peter came up with on his own. God the Father revealed this to him. And as we've seen on numerous occasions throughout the story of the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples are no more insightful than anyone else when relying on their own abilities, are they? The rest of this passage is actually one of the more difficult ones in the Bible to understand. Uh, There are new numbers of varying opinions among Bible scholars, for example, about what Jesus means when he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Some think Jesus is saying the church will be built on the foundation of Peter and the other apostles. Some think Jesus is saying the church will be built on Peter's testimony that Jesus is the Christ. Some think Jesus is saying the church will be built on Jesus himself, the Christ. Well, all of these are true, and they all work, and none of them cause any significant trouble for our theology and salvation. So, don't, don't, don't lose your mind over it. Hades is the realm of the dead. So Jesus is saying death and hell will not overcome his mission and his building of the church. In the ancient world, the keeping of the keys was one of the most important responsibilities that a servant could be entrusted with. Having the keys, it it didn't give the servant authority to do whatever he wanted to do as far as who was invited in and who was shut out, but rather he was entrusted with carrying out the will of the master concerning these things, and he was trusted enough that he would indeed carry out the will of his master. Being given the keys of the kingdom means Jesus is giving his followers, you and me, the amazing opportunity to participate in his work and mission. We're invited to be part of what he's doing in this world. When he says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom, he goes, hey, I'm giving you the opportunity to be part of my mission. And I'm entrusting you to carry it out the way I want it done. What an incredible privilege that is. And a great responsibility. Amen. Verse 20 says, Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why? Because it isn't time yet. The disciples, they suffer from the same misconceptions about the Messiah as others did at that time. Jesus was not a political Messiah. He didn't come to overthrow the Roman government and establish Israel as the world power. His mission was to save us from our sins and to establish the kingdom of God in us. 
the disciples, they still don't understand Jesus' mission yet. And until Jesus dies and is resurrected, his mission will not have been completed. Now, one day his followers will be told to go into all the world and proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. But that day hasn't come yet for them. Now, that day has come for us. You, you can tell anyone who Jesus is. You're allowed. In fact, you're encouraged. In fact, you're commanded to do that. In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says, Now go into all the world and tell them that I am the Christ and make them my disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that moment hasn't come yet in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus, he begins explaining to his disciples what his mission as Messiah is going to require of him. He's going to go to Jerusalem, the center of both political and religious power in Israel. But it won't be to ascend to his throne as king and begin to overthrow Israel's enemies. Instead, he's going to be rejected by the leaders of Israel and suffer terribly at their hands. And then they will have him killed. Jesus then ends this with this mysterious remark. And on the third day, be raised back to life. Now, it's not mysterious for you and me because we, you know, we know the end of the story. But for his disciples in the moment, they're thinking, okay, whatever. See, for them, this is all just too much. They can't accept this as the fate of the Messiah. This goes against everything they have ever been taught about Messiah and what he would do when he comes. The Messiah is supposed to be their great warrior king, freeing them from the bondage of their enemies and establishing Israel's kingdom forever. A suffering and dying Messiah is unthinkable for them. This whole business about on the third day raising back to life is something that they can't even hear. That sounds like a bunch of nonsense to them in the moment. It won't be until after Jesus has actually been raised back to life that they will even remember that he said it. Verse 22 says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Although they are all thinking along the same lines, Peter is the one who takes the lead and confronts Jesus about all this crazy talk. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. That's pretty bold for Peter to do. I wonder if Peter is feeling a little more confident than he should after nailing the question who do you say I am? (laughs) 
He takes it upon himself to straighten Jesus out. He tells him, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I will not have you talking like that, Jesus. You don't understand what you're saying. The Messiah is going to reign in power and overthrow all of Israel's enemies and make them a footstool for their feet. You're going to be the king. Enough of this weak sauce talk. I don't want to hear any more about it. 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, Jesus, he now gives Peter and the other disciples a sharp rebuke because they are trying to talk him out of going through with the mission that God the Father has for him. Jesus recognizes that Satan is behind this, trying to use Peter against him. You know, Satan, he can use our friends against us too. We need to be on our guard. We should measure all advice that we get from everyone, even our friends, against the Word of God. Our friends can mean well, as Peter obviously means well for Jesus here. But our friends don't always have a complete picture of what the Lord wants from us. We need to follow the Lord rather than our friends. Jesus said, you do not have the mind and the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, you might not like to hear this, but what humanity thinks is best for humanity is not always what is best for humanity. Our point of view needs to be theocentric, God-centered, rather than anthropocentric or human-centered. It may sound counterintuitive for us, but taking the God-centered point of view actually leads to the very best possible outcome for us as human beings. Peter thinks the worst possible thing that could happen would be for Jesus to be rejected, to suffer, and be killed. But in reality, the very best thing for humanity is for Jesus to be rejected and to suffer and be killed. Humanity is separated from God because of our sin. Our sin has doomed us to an eternity away from God in utter darkness and misery. We need a Savior. We need someone to die for our sin. We need somebody to rescue us. We need someone to stand in the gap for us between holy God and the trashed existence we've made for ourselves. Jesus has done that for us. Humanity focuses all of its energy on trying to make the best life we can on this busted up rock called earth. Never considering the possibility that our current situation was never intended to be our home. The home that God originally made for us was a beautiful paradise. God's intention for us through Jesus is to bring us back to himself and this better place. Jesus is going to have to die to accomplish the will of God. The disciples, they can't understand how the death of the Messiah can result in any kind of good. But it's the only way. It has to be this way in order for the human race to be reconciled to God. We don't understand the purpose behind many things in this life. But it's important that we trust God. He knows what he's doing. 
There's that wonderful verse in Jeremiah 29, uh, 11 that reminds us of that truth. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that's no more true than in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In closing, I want to leave us with that all-important question that Jesus asked his disciples. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And the follow-up question for us is this. How does how you and I answer that question affect how we live our life? Let's think about that this week. Let's bow our heads. Father, we want to thank you for your good word spoken to us. And Father, we ask that you would change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. That we would take on the character and the nature of Jesus. We ask that you would fill our life with hope and peace built upon Christ, our rock. In Jesus' name, amen.